Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to deal with the rising cost of inflation to pay off your debt or your mortgage, pretty much anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Well, with Yahoo Finance, you can get access to the news, data, and tools that you need in order to help you reach that financial freedom. And when it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. And now you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses. Yahoo Finance. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute doing another live podcast you know i've gotten a lot of positive feedback i guess on the live podcasts people seem to appreciate them maybe they just like seeing me as opposed to hearing me so i'm probably going to continue it for a while and 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 see uh how things develop you know if you like this format better than the recorded ones which are generally a little bit more polished because I have a chance to edit them. If I misspeak, I'm able to you know stop and record it again. So when I do those uh, recorded ones without video, it's generally a little bit more concise uh, because I have time to start and over again. But it's difficult to do that with a video format because it'll be obvious if I start and stop because you know you can see me. Uh, so this is kind of off the cuff. And, you know, if I misspeak, well, it's just it's just in there. But if you prefer this uh, type of format, let me know. You know, if you're watching on YouTube, thumbs up, uh, a like, whatever it is that you do. So I can see if I'm getting more of those with this format than I was with the previous format. And so if I know that it's appreciated and more people are listening and more people are sharing the podcasts, then I'll keep doing them I'm already getting a lot more views, so I think that's helping uh, the reach of the podcast. I think YouTube is promoting it more since I'm doing it live with videos. So that is helping get the word out there because it really is important, you know, now more than ever, that the truth get out. No, I was watching earlier today the Senate hearings, and I didn't have a chance to watch the whole thing. I mean, I'm going to have to go back and do that. You know, it's up on YouTube, but I caught little pieces of it. And this is a hearing where they're talking about Silicon Valley Bank or Signature Bank and, you know, why it failed. And they've got this guy up there that's at the Federal Reserve. And he's, you know, part of the Fed that, you know, oversees these banks. Right. And of course, you know, 
in typical congressional fashion, they want to close the doors after the last horse has left the barn, right? Like, big deal. Like, they're having these hearings just so they can try to blame somebody for what happened. And, of course, the Democrats, they want to blame it on a lack of regulation. Orange, you keep saying deregulation, deregulation, deregulation. Like, the D in the regulation is the problem. The D is not the part that's the problem. It's the regulation that is the problem. And deregulation, to the extent that we actually had any, didn't cause the problem. If we had any deregulation, the problem is we didn't deregulate enough. We allowed too much of the regulation to remain. And the regulation is the problem. You know, these uh, senators want the public to believe that if we just have more bureaucrats in charge of banks, that there's nothing to worry about. Like somehow these uh, politicians, or they're not, maybe they're not politicians if they're working at the Fed, they just have political connections. But somehow people that the government appoints to a government job, that these guys are gonna be so smart that they're gonna be able to figure out the problems and protect everybody. They're not. Chances are the regulators are dumber than the people that they're regulating. Because if the regulators were smarter, they wouldn't be regulators. They could make a lot more money in the private sector. So what job do you want? Banker or bank regulator, right? Because if you're really smart, you can make a lot more money contributing to the profitability of your bank, right? So the best and the brightest aren't the regulators, right? The guys that graduate at the top of their class They're not the guys that go for these government jobs, right? It's usually the people that barely graduated, right? They squeak by in in the bottom of their class. And the only jobs they can get are government jobs, right? Or they've got a connection in the government. And so they get a job there and they can never get one in the private sector, you know, where competency actually counts. It seems that now the most thing that's important, right? Or the most important thing in getting a government job is that you check the right box on your ethnicity, or your sexual orientation, or you know how you identify, or all that nonsense. That's what they're care they care about more than competence, and 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 much more so in the government than the private sector, where nobody is accountable because nobody cares if you screw up in government. Nobody loses any money. I mean, the public loses money, but the politicians don't care about that, right? Uh, so you're never going to have the most competent people in government. That's why. You want the free market to regulate banks as well as everything else. Now, whenever I talk about free market regulation, people generally say, what do you mean? There is no free market regulation. You don't want any regulation. No, the free market is another way of regulating behavior and conduct. You can have the government regulate or you can have the market do it. When the market does it, it works a lot better than when the government does it. And in fact, when the government basically usurps the job that would be better done by the market, they short circuit the market's safeguards. They basically prevent the markets from doing their job and regulating, and they substitute the judgment of these incompetent bureaucrats. And we have the predictable results. Now, when I say, what do you mean let the market regulate? How would the market regulate banks? Well, easy, the same way the market regulates everything, competition and individual self-interest. People 
who would be shopping around for a bank in a free market, right? People would not just put their money in a bank unless they did some homework. I mean, after all, that's your hard-earned life savings. You're not just going to throw it into any old bank. You're going to do some research. And again, even if you're not competent to do the research yourself, you're going to make damn sure that somebody else did the research and you're going to follow their lead or subscribe to that service. You know, and, and the banks would know this. And if I'm a bank, I know that the most important thing is safety. I mean, normally, absent the FDIC, if there was no government insurance and I was trying to convince somebody to deposit their life savings into my bank, what would be the most important aspect of my bank that would convince somebody to give me their money, to entrust their deposits with me? It would be my reputation for safety, for soundness, because after all, they don't want to lose their money. And so they would shop around. And I would know this as a banker, and I would be rewarded for sound, prudent stewardship of deposits. Because if I had a reputation for being very safe with everybody's money, well, then more people are going to send me their money. I'm going to succeed as a banker by nurturing my reputation for sound, prudent banking. So in a free market, the banks that are the most sound, the most prudent, take the fewest risks, are going to be the ones that succeed because they're going to gather the most deposits and those riskier banks, well, they're not going to make it. That's a free market. But in the government market where the government says, hey, we've got all these bank accounts insured. Who cares where you put your money? They're all this just as safe, right? No bank is safer than any other bank. No matter what they do, no matter what harebrained scheme they concoct, your money is safe. So the government has now prevented that, eliminated competition based on safety and soundness. There's no longer a reward to a banker for playing it safe. He's not going to get any more customers by avoiding risk than he will by assuming risk because the government has taken that out of the equation. So that is why there is so much risk. That is why the banks are so insolvent and the whole system, because the government has replaced the free market regulation that would rein in risky behavior with government regulation that actually encourages risky behavior with this moral hazard. So senators like Elizabeth Warren, she's never going to get this. She just thinks that governments can always do a better job. And that there's a problem, it's because there wasn't enough regulation. And the solution is to put more bureaucrats that she appoints in charge of the banks to protect us. And of course, you know, if it works for banks, well, then it would work for everything. If the free market doesn't function when it comes to banking, then why should it function uh, when it comes to anything else? Right? Well, we need the government to do everything, which, of course, would make Elizabeth Warren perfectly happy because she is, in fact, a socialist. Right. That's what socialists believe. They don't believe in capitalism. They think government bureaucrats can do a better job right? because they care more than the market. The market is cruel. Right. The market doesn't care about your race or about your gender or about global warming. Right. The market is uh, just uh, out there. Right. It doesn't discriminate. It's, it's just rewarding success and punishing failure. Equal opportunity. Right. So the governments don't like that. And when you have a free market, there's no special favors, right? The government 
can reward its friends with special with special favors. But that's not a free market. You're rigging the market to reward your friends and punish your enemies. That's what the government wants. They don't want a level playing field because they don't have any power in a level playing field. They get power by tilting that playing field. So again, the whole purpose of these hearings to try to figure out why there's not enough regulation. And if we only had more regulation, well then Silicon Valley Bank wouldn't have failed or Signature Bank wouldn't have failed. No, they would have failed no matter how much regulation they had, the result would have been the same. The only way these banks might have succeeded would have been if we repealed all the regulations and had a real free market. The free market is the only chance they had. And of course, there's a lot more banks uh, that would be failing if we went to a free market now because they're so screwed up from all these years of being protected by government. No, government is now increasing the backstops. They have already now guaranteed all these accounts at these too big to fail banks and these other systemically important banks. Believe me, if the government made it clear right now that none of these too big to fail banks were in fact too big to fail, and that if you have your money at Bank of America or Wells Fargo or JP Morgan or any of these big banks, if the government said today, if these banks fail and you have more than $250,000 in it, you're out of luck. And by the way, we're gonna let them fail because if they're too big to fail, they're, they're too big to exist, right? We're just going to allow them to fail. They all would fail because nobody would leave their money there. Everybody with a big, big account would rush to remove their funds because they're all as insolvent as Silicon Valley Bank was. It's just that people are leaving their money in an insolvent institution because of the government guarantees. But they never would have been able to get so big and so insolvent but for those guarantees. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. All right, so getting back to the Senate hearing today on why Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank failed. And by the way, if you want to buy stock in these bankrupt companies, you're in luck because they're open for trading again. They're now trading on the over-the-counter market. I just noticed that today. I think that they might have uh, just started trading today. Uh, Silicon, uh, Silicon Valley Bank uh, closed at 40 cents on the day. Now, that bank had a 52-week high of just under $600 a share. And so now it's 40 cents. The intraday low was a penny. If that was a real tick, I'm kind of looking at my chart. I don't know. Maybe that wasn't a real tick. Obviously, if you were able to buy some at two or three cents a share, you got a nice trade. If you could cash out at 40 cents, that's a big profit. 
But this is a huge collapse, the same order of magnitude uh, for a Signature Bank uh, trading for just pennies a share. I think the high on Signature Bank was about 352-week high. But for all intent and purpose, you know, the company is wiped out and it's just like a little, you know, chip that you can gamble on and, and, and day trade it until it ultimately uh, zeroes out. <laughs> but, you know, I guess, you know, it just makes as much sense as, you know, trading a meme stock. I'm sure somebody on Reddit or on some platform is going to think that, you know, they can buy this stuff. Uh, but, you know, again, it's like a game of musical chairs. You, you might make money trading these stocks. Just when the music stops, you don't want to hold on to it because then you're you're holding the bag. Of course, if you make enough money trading uh, and then just lose, it's kind of like being at a casino in Vegas. If you're on a crap table and, you know, it's a hot table, you know, even if you ultimately, you know, lose your bet on, you know, on the pass line or whatever, but if enough numbers are rolled, you could, you could take a lot of money off the table before you lose your bet. So, I mean, you could do that gambling in these stocks, not that I'm advising you to do it, but if you're going to do it, you can't leave all your money on the table, right? Because let's say you're playing a crap table and you never take any money out. Every time you win a bet, you just press it and you're just building up all these chips. One seven and you're done, right? Then you've lost all your winnings and your winnings don't matter. So if you're going to gamble in these kind of stocks, you got to keep taking your winnings off the table. And if you get a long enough run, maybe by the time you crap out and the stock goes to zero, you would have made so much money, taken so much off the table that you actually end up being a winner. But again, it's not really investing. This is gambling or trading or you know some people can do it. But anyway, my point is that they're doing this hearing to try to figure this out. And I'm watching this one U.S. Senator, Kennedy, and I want to reach out to this guy. I'd like to have a conversation with him because he made a very good point. But he's talking to this guy from the Fed about the stress test. And one of the things that they're they're saying up on Capitol Hill, particularly the Democrats, they're saying that the problem was that Silicon Valley Bank was too small to be stress tested, that the only banks that the Fed tested were, I think, the 29, maybe that's not the number, but I think it was 29, but I could be wrong. But the largest banks were the banks that were required to pass the Fed's stress tests. And Silicon Valley Bank didn't make the cut, right? So a lot of the Democrats were saying, you see, that's the problem. If only there was more regulation. If only the Federal Reserve had stress tested Silicon Valley Bank, right, they would have spotted this problem and, and, and they would have prevented it, right? And so this Senator Kennedy is pointing out the truth, right? So he says to uh, this guy from the Fed, even if you had stress tested Silicon Valley Bank, it wouldn't have made a difference, would it? It wouldn't have mattered. Because they would have passed your test. And the answer is yes. Why? Because the tests were bogus. They were BS. Because the stress tests only stress for an environment where interest rates went down. They never bothered to stress rising interest rates, despite the fact that the Fed was increasing rates. You would think, hey, we're about to embark on this tightening cycle. Why don't we see how banks would react to tightening? No, no, no. They didn't bother. They only stress tested what would happen if they had to start cutting, if rates went down. Now, why did they do that? Well, because they always fight 
the last war. What was the last war? Well, it was the 2008 financial crisis. What happened during that crisis? Well, interest rates went down to zero. And so they assumed if there was another crisis, the economy was weak, you know, real estate loans went bad. They thought that all of that would happen in the context of rates going down. And so all of their stress tests, even the most adverse scenario, right, the most extreme, harsh economic environment that these guys could come up with had interest rates going down, had inflation going down, right, the way it did in 2009. Now, at the time, on this podcast, I talked about how bogus the stress tests were. I mean, one of the analogies, one of the analogies I used was like having a, a big suspension bridge and then, you know, unleashing a bunch of gerbils and these gerbils run over the bridge and it doesn't collapse. And you're like, aha, we passed the stress test. There's not enough stress there to be celebrating. When these tests were announced, it was like three years ago, right? When the Fed came out and they did all these stress tests and they made a big deal in the media because they, they were promoting, hey, look, the banking system is found. Sound. All of these banks passed our stress test. Hallelujah. We got nothing to worry about. Good thing we got the Fed on the job putting these banks through these rigorous stress tests. And now we could all you know, sleep soundly knowing that all these banks have passed the Fed's stress test. Now, most people probably just, okay, great. The Fed stress tested them and they passed. Nobody bothered to actually look at the assumptions that were in the stress test. I did. I looked at them and I saw that they were testing for the wrong thing. And if you don't believe me, you could just look at Twitter because I happened to pull up this tweet and I retweeted it today. And the original tweet was from June 21st of 2019. This is when they had announced the results of these stress tests. And everybody was lauding the results and how great it was that we had such a sound banking system that all the banks passed, right? And I said, I'm gonna read my own tweet, right? This is what I said. The Fed's stress tests are worthless. The most adverse scenario assumes both inflation and long-term interest rates fall. During the next recession, both inflation and long-term interest rates will rise. No major bank could survive stagflation. That's why the Fed doesn't test for it. That's it. I nailed this three years ago. And when you uh, watch this interview, and I think I'm going to condense it. I'm going to put out a short little video and show uh, Senator Kennedy talking to this Fed guy. And he points out, hey, you moron, why didn't you test for rising interest rates? And he's like, well, you know, because in the scenarios that we run, we just assume that rates go down. It's like in their wildest imagination, the people at the Federal Reserve couldn't even conceive of what's happening right now. Stagflation was not even within the realm of possibility. They could not imagine an environment where there was a problem in the economy and interest rates didn't go down, right? They could not even envision what's happening today, right? And these are these geniuses at the Federal Reserve. So why do we need more regulation? Because the regulation we had in place would not have worked. The idiots at the Fed, and these guys are supposed to be the smart ones, 
but they were too dumb to see what I tweeted about three years ago. And again, I didn't tweet about it because I was so smart. It's just they were that dumb to have missed something so obvious. You know, all the uh, congressmen had to do was just follow me on Twitter, right? And they would have known that those stress tests were bogus because I pointed out the elephant in the room, that they hadn't stressed for rising interest rates, rising inflation. I mean, certainly that was a possibility. I mean, I knew it was a certainty, but they should have at least acknowledged that it was possible. Of course, it happened. And it's going to happen even worse because the recession is going to get worse. Inflation is going to get higher. Long-term interest rates are going to spike. By the way, look at the yield curve. It is now uninverting. The yield on the 30-year is starting to move up. Things are starting to unravel. Slowly at first, it is going to pick up momentum. You can see it in the markets. I can see it in the gold market. Gold is that proverbial coiled spring right now. It was up about 15, 16 bucks today, maybe 1970. It's got higher lows. It, it goes above 2000. It sells off, but it doesn't go back down as low. If you're trying to get the previous low, the market's not giving you that opportunity. The lows are getting higher. People are moving into gold. It is getting ready to explode to the upside. And you still have an opportunity to buy these gold stocks. You just can't be greedy and try to get a big dip because you're not getting a big dip. I mean, you're getting dips, but they're not big enough. They don't go down to the previous lows. You have to be willing to pay up to get these stocks. They're still giving you an opportunity to buy them, though. Take advantage of it, right? And I again, I think the best way to do it is through me, my gold fund, Adrian Day, Euro Pacific Gold Fund, buy the fund, or if you're a larger investor, set up a managed account in the gold strategy for us to manage for you at Euro Pacific Asset Management. But do it quickly, because I think there's going to be an explosive up move in the gold stocks, in gold, a big drop in the dollar. Again, dollar index to me looks like it's getting ready to, to, you know, to fall off a cliff. You know, it's just this consolidation period. We're in a little bit of a no man's land. You know, it's like the deer in the headlight. People haven't really come to terms with the gravity of what's about to happen. I know what's about to happen because I have been forecasting it for years. You know, and by the way, I've had some people comment and I, you know, I read the comments, not all of them, but I look at the comments on the YouTube videos. And there are some people that seem to get annoyed by the fact that I, you know, I say, I told you so, you know, I, I talk about stuff that I got right uh, as if I'm just bragging about the stuff that I got right. There is a reason that I need to remind people of key things that I got right, like recognizing that these stress tests were bogus, recognizing that they should have tested for higher interest rates and inflation, which is exactly what this senator said the Fed should have done, except he didn't say it three years ago like I did. He waited for the higher interest rates to cause the problem that I predicted it would cause three years ago. But the reason I'm doing this, it's not because I just want to you know, blow my own horn. I think it's important for people to know this stuff that I got right. You know, because not everybody has been listening to my podcast for the last 10 years, right? It's like there are people that have just started listening last week. They don't know. They hear me making a lot of bold predictions. And it's like, who the hell is this guy? You know, how, how is he right? 
and they read a lot of stuff about, well, you know, he's been gloom and doom for 10 years. He's a stop clock. Like, he doesn't know what he's talking about. So I got to point this stuff out because it's important that I have credibility about these bigger forecasts. Because if I remind people, if I point out all these little things along the way that I got right, and in, this, in the scheme of things, they're not really little. They're pretty big things that I got right that so many other people either got completely wrong or they missed. It's important for people to have confidence that the other things that I am predicting now that haven't happened yet, that they will happen. You know, they say, you know, in the investment world, past performance is no guarantee of future results, right? Which, you know, I guess is true. But if somebody has gotten a lot of stuff right, I think that person is more likely to get more stuff right than somebody who's got a lot of stuff wrong. Like if you're always wrong, what's the odds that you're suddenly gonna be right? Whereas if you've been right about a lot of things, well, maybe you'll keep being right because maybe you're right because you actually get it. Maybe the reason that I got all this stuff right is because I actually understand the problem and how it's gonna be resolved. And maybe the reason that so many other people have gotten so many things wrong and the reason they continue to get stuff wrong is because they don't understand. So I wanna make it perfectly clear to people who are following me that I get this. And yeah, a lot of forecasts haven't come true yet, but they will because so many others already have. And the only thing about all this stuff that's happening that is shocking the hell out of everybody, right? the only thing that surprises me is that it took so long to happen. I'm not surprised by what's happening because I predicted what's happening for the precise reasons that it's happening. I didn't just grab stuff out of left field. When I talked about the problems that the banks were going to have with rising interest rates, I laid out exactly what those problems were. And remember that the mainstream uh, uh, conventional wisdom, right, wisdom in quotes, about um, the um, the banks and interest rates was that rising interest rates were going to be great for the banks. Oh, yeah, it's going to be great because they're going to be able to earn more money on their loans. They overlooked the elephant in the room, which was the loans they already made, how much they were going to lose. You know, I, I was doing a, uh, a, a call this morning. It was a you know, weekly call that we do with the team at Europe Pacific Asset Management. We discussed the strategy. I have all the portfolio managers on there with me. And, you know, we're talking about strategy and stuff. We do that, you know, once a week. And it came out in conversation that one of the guys got a 30-year mortgage. He bought his house here in Puerto Rico, actually, but he closed in like March, April of 2020. So right when interest rates were at their absolute low, he got a 30-year fixed rate mortgage at 2.88%. That's the lowest I've heard anybody get, 2.88%. Now, that is a huge win for him because for the next 30 years, He's got money at 2.88%. Again, think about First Bank in Puerto Rico that owns that mortgage. They're stuck collecting 2.88% for the next 30 years. That is a huge loss for that bank. Now, right now, it's not really you know, hurting them so much because they're still paying their depositors zero. I know because I've got money over there and I'm getting nothing, right? But you know, I don't want to put too much money there because I don't want to get nothing. I could leave my cash in my money market account, at my brokerage account, right? And I'm getting, I don't know, you know, over 4%, whatever it is, 
So I don't want to put a lot of money in my bank account. I want to have it in my money market, in my brokerage account. And, and more people are going to start yanking their money out of these banks. It's going to be a huge problem. But again, I was one of the only people for years talking about the flip side of these low mortgages. Everybody wanted to talk about how great it was that Americans were able to refinance and get all their mortgages down. And I kept saying, yeah, but what about the lenders? How horrible is it going to be for them when they're stuck with these loans? What is it going to do to their balance sheets when they're underwater in these mortgages? Well, we know it rendered them insolvent. But again, you know, these hearings totally missed the point that one of the reasons that banks loaded up on these mortgages, government guaranteed, you know, mortgages and 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 treasuries was because the regulators favored those investments because had they bought non-government debt, they would have had to take a haircut. They would have had to have marked their securities to market. But because they did what the regulators wanted them to do, they didn't have to have a haircut. They didn't have to mark to market. So because of these idiotic regulations that favored government debt over any other kind of debt, they said, hey, this debt is safe no matter what your maturity is. All you have to do is agree to hold it to maturity, no haircut, no mark to market. You can pretend you're solvent even when you're broke. And that's what happened. And now to say, oh, the solution is more regulations, the regulations caused a problem. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. This is the ultimate irony of the fact that Silicon Valley Bank was loaded up with all these long-term treasuries and mortgage-backed securities even though they had tremendous interest rate risk, which obviously the Fed didn't perceive because they did not even conceive of a stress test that stress tested rising interest rates. I mean, think about that. They know all these banks are loaded up with long-term debt. They know they're going to raise interest rates, right? That's their plan. And they don't even bother to stress test how the banks are going to hold up in a rising rate environment when they themselves are getting ready to raise the rates, right? They're, they're pulling the rug out from under this house of cards and they didn't even want to see if it could stand without the rug, right? I mean, it's so ridiculous. We had so much regulation and it didn't matter, but not only did it matter, if it wasn't for government regulators, this wouldn't have happened. The banks wouldn't have had all this debt on their books had the regulators not pushed them into it by encouraging them with favorable tax treatment. And you know, when you got audited, if you're a bank, and the regulators come in and they want to audit your books. And if you have a lot of loans to the private sector, you know, stuff like that, they are going to really scrutinize your collateral. They're going to look at it and they're, you know, maybe they're going to say, oh, you got to write this down. You got to, you know, you, you got to take a haircut here. But if the regulators come in and they will say, oh, where do you have your deposits? Oh, it's all in U.S. government bonds and uh, government guaranteed mortgages. Oh, great. Pat you on the back. Good job. No, no, you know, you pass. Right. Because th that's what they're looking for. Oh, you're in these risk free uh, bonds. You can't lose. You're holding those to maturity. They can't even conceive of the possibility where they can't hold them to maturity. 
because maybe their customers want their money back. Oh, to heaven forbid, a bank has to give its depositors its money. Let, let's, let's stress test that. No, so the, the regulators not only encouraged them to buy all these bonds, but of course they insulated them from any concern that their depositors might've had because everything was insured. And no one cared about the too big to fail banks because, hey, they're too big to fail. So it doesn't matter what happens to them, right? They're never gonna let them fail. Uh, so they can do whatever they want because if they get in trouble, uh, they're gonna print money. And now we've escalated that moral hazard uh, by bailing out the uninsured accounts. And as I said, I believe that sometime soon, there's gonna be an explicit guarantee that's gonna extend to all the banks because I think they've already created a run on the small banks. And if they don't do something to stop that run soon, uh, more of them are gonna fail. And so that's what they're probably gonna do. Now it's the wrong thing, but that's what they're going to do. Again, when the government makes a mistake, they never correct their mistake. They just make another mistake to try to counteract the effects of that mistake, right? Because they can never admit to doing something wrong. That's just not within their DNA even though everything they do is wrong. And that's why more regulation is not gonna help. Now, the, the last thing I wanted to talk about, I mentioned this before, but uh, I wanted to clarify it again, because it's a, it's a confusing topic. But, so the Fed was fighting inflation by raising interest rates. Now, raising interest rates only, only help reduce inflation to the extent that they change the uh, spending and, um, and, and, and uh, saving patterns. They need to be high enough to discourage consumption and borrowing to consume, and they need to encourage people to save. Now, that will only happen if the interest rates are significantly above the inflation rate. Otherwise, you're not going to get that that effect or that result. The only thing that the rate hikes have accomplished because they're not high enough to fight inflation is that they are high enough to raise inflation. <laughs> that part of the problem now is rising interest rates, right? It's not part of the solution because they're not willing to raise them high enough. It's part of the problem. And what do I mean by that? Interest rates are prices, just like anything else. And if you're a business, you have prices that you pay. Let's call them costs. You got labor costs. You got raw material costs. You got rent, right? There's all these costs that you have to operate a business. Well, if you have debt, which most businesses have, you know, thanks to the Fed, we have a lot of debt because rates were so low. But you're a business and you have debt, and now the interest rates go up because business debt isn't a 30-year fixed rate mortgage, right? That stuff matures every few years. And so now I'm a businessman and my debt service costs have gone way up. Well, that's the same as my labor costs going up or my raw material costs going up. How do I respond? How do I recoup those rising interest expenses? I raise my prices. So when the Fed raises interest rates, it puts pressure on businesses to raise their prices the opposite of what it's trying to accomplish. Also with housing, rising interest rates make home ownership more expensive. They push up the cost of taking on a mortgage. That makes it easier for landlords to raise rents. 
because it's harder for potential tenants to go out and buy something because it's too expensive with higher rates. So they have no choice but to rent, even if the rent goes up. Now, in an environment where interest rates are really low, well, there is a limit now to how high I can raise my rents because my tenants might be able to go out and buy and qualify for a low interest rate loan. But when they don't have that competition, I don't have to worry about my tenant getting a low interest rate loan because they're not available. Well, I have more room to jack up my rents. So that's a big part of consumer prices, and that's going up more. Also, um, rents, you know, interest rates are part of all sorts of costs because a lot of people were buying stuff over time, uh, you know, nothing down. I mean, think about all these cell phones. Every couple of years, people are going out there buying a new iPhone. They cost $1,200, $1,400. The reason they can buy them is because of the low interest rates because the, the cell cellular providers, they just say, look here, you can take the phone, no money down. We'll just charge you 10, 15 bucks a month extra on your bill. You can have a brand new iPhone. And so people do it. But where is, or where, the cell phone companies, how are they getting the money to pay Apple? They're borrowing it really cheap. Well, well, if they can't borrow the money really cheap, then they can't offer those special deals. So then people have to pay the higher price. They're not going to get a break with lower interest rates. But there's another key factor here. And this is why raising interest rates is going to complicate the Fed's inflation fight, which is why I knew that it would have to concede, which is, in fact, what has already happened, right? Quantitative tightening is over. Quantitative easing has started, and it's not going to stop, right? We, look, we see how long that happened, right? Because the Fed initially did quantitative easing, and they got the balance sheet up to $4.5 trillion. Then they started quantitative tightening, and when it got a little bit below $4.5 trillion, they finally kind of reversed the process a little bit. And the next thing you knew, we were at $9 trillion. Right? Once they were, once they go from quantitative tightening to quantitative easing, they don't go right back to quantitative tightening. They're at easing for a long time. I mean, think of how long QE lasted the last time. Right? It went on forever before they tried to uh, withdraw that liquidity. The problem is they they withdraw the liquidity until the economy goes into convulsions. Right? It's like you're taking the heroin away from the addict, but the minute he has withdrawal symptoms, you, you shoot him right back up. That's what happened in 2018 when the market started to implode. So the Fed went from quantitative tightening to quantitative easing. Well, as soon as the banks started to buckle, right, they started to see the symptoms, the withdrawal symptoms from the detox of the quantitative tightening, they went right back to quantitative easing. That's going to continue. But the problem with rising interest rates is the impact it has on the federal budget. One of the reasons that the budget deficits have not been larger, and they've been enormous, I mean, they've been record highs, but the main reason that they haven't been even bigger is because of the expense to pay the interest on the national debt. We have a $32 trillion or so national debt. I mean, they haven't raised the, the limit yet, uh, but they will. But we have this huge debt. But the cost to the government of making the interest payments on that debt has been low, thanks to 0% interest rates. And so since the government has to borrow all the money to pay the interest, it's just part of the budget deficit, 
because it didn't have to borrow as much to pay you know, 25 basis points of interest, that meant that the budget deficits, because of low interest rates, were smaller. Now, the Fed is raising interest rates to fight the inflation that it created, and it's creating a huge problem for the government because now the interest expense is rising, and so now the deficits are exploding. Deficit spending is an engine of inflation because inevitably the bigger deficits get monetized by the central bank, which is exactly what is going to happen. So because the Fed raised interest rates to fight the inflation it created, it's now gonna have to create even more inflation to bail out the government, which now has to pay a much higher interest on its debt. So it can't win. That's why I've been saying there's, there's no way out of this. Inflation is going to surge. Now, one of the things that I, I, I really wasn't thinking about initially was the impact that these lower interest rates were gonna have paradoxically on reducing the CPI. Because when interest rates were held at zero for so long, even though the Fed was printing all this money, those 0% interest rates were helping to suppress the CPI. Now, a lot of people were saying, Peter Schiff, you said that these low interest rates were gonna cause inflation, and it didn't happen. I didn't say that the low interest rates were gonna cause inflation. I said the low interest rates were gonna cause bubbles in the stock market, in the real estate market, in the bond market, and they did. What I always said was gonna cause the inflation was the inflation, which was the expansion of the money supply that was necessary to create those low interest rates. What was the mechanism by which the Fed lowered interest rates? Well, it printed money. It did quantitative easing. Quantitative easing was inflation. Putting all that money into the economy was what I was concerned about. Now, what I didn't necessarily appreciate was the extent to which the initial decline in interest rates would bring down the CPI, making it harder for people to appreciate the inflation that the Fed had created. Because in the short run, paradoxically, the inflation that the Fed created helped to lower the CPI because it initially lowered interest rates. But that effect is now over. And we arrived at the long term because all the money that the Fed printed to bring interest rates down that brought the CPI down is now coming back to bite us. And it has pushed the inflation rate much higher. Now that that has happened, interest rates can't stay down. Interest rates have to rise now because inflation is so much higher. And those higher inflation rates are going to be built in to bond prices, which is why you're seeing now this increase in longer term interest rates relative to short term, which is now happening as the yield curve is steepening. It is going to get a lot steeper as the inflation psychology becomes entrenched and becomes a reality where people recognize that we have high inflation as far as the eye can see. And at this point, if the Fed starts cutting interest rates, it's not going to matter. The genie is all out of the bottle. If they cut rates now, it is not going to have the impact on consumer prices it had before because inflation is already 6%. And if they do that, the dollar is going to tank. No question about it. If they cut rates, and I think they've already stopped hiking rates, and that's even enough to tank the dollar. But when they cut rates, they're gonna, you know, they're gonna drive a stake through the dollar's heart. But the dollar's gonna tank. 
what's going to happen to oil prices and other commodity prices when the dollar tanks? They're going to shoot up. And so the CPI is going to go up and interest rates are already going up. Long-term rates are not going to come down. I said this, the next round of QE is going to backfire just like the, the, the Fed was surprised. They expected if there was any problems in the economy, rates would go down. They didn't. They went up because they didn't envision stagflation. Well, there's a lot of stuff that the Fed hasn't envisioned. All that stuff is about to happen. All the stuff that I've been forecasting for years is the stuff that's, a, that's happening and that will happen that the Fed was not able to see. So at this point, it's over, right? The end game is here. It's checkmate for the Fed. Inflation is going to keep on rising. More banks are going to be in trouble, which means more banks are going to be bailed out, which means more inflation is going to be created to pay for the bailouts. The budget deficits are already going to skyrocket based on where interest rates are. The deficits are going to rise even bigger, not only because of the recession starving the government for revenue, but now the Federal Reserve is losing a fortune on its balance sheet. Just like Silicon Valley Bank was loaded up with bonds and mortgage-backed securities, what do you think the Federal Reserve is loaded up with on its $32 trillion balance sheet? It has huge losses right now, and it's going to have to absorb more of those losses as it's forced to sell some of these securities. And what happens to the losses? Sends a bill to the U.S. government, which is going to increase uh, the deficits. Also, even if they don't sell, if the Fed is earning 1% on its portfolio of treasuries and it's having to pay banks 4 or 5% for parking their cash with the Fed, it's losing a ton of money. The opposite of what it was doing before. It was making a ton of money and then sending a check to the government. Now it's losing a ton of money and sending a bill to the government. <clears throat> Meanwhile, Things like Social Security, they have a COLA. I mean, all this stuff is just exploding. The cost of um, uh, government-provided health care and retirement benefits. So the deficits are soaring, which means even more money has to be printed. And so all these inflation chickens are coming home to roost exactly when the rest of the world is trying to de-dollarize. By the way, over the weekend, another major announcement coming out of Saudi Arabia before I talk about on this podcast how China brokered a peace deal between Saudi Arabia and Iran, right? U.S., nowhere to be found. Uh, China is the peacemaker, right? Ingratiating itself with these countries, becoming more in important uh, in the region. Now, Saudi Aramco announced a deal to build a huge uh, refinery in China. They're going to build it in China, and they have a deal to sell. I forget how many barrels a day. It's an enormous amount of oil that the Saudis are going to be selling to the Chinese and supplying this brand-new refinery. Of course, you know who knows when the last time we built a refinery. I'm not sure if we've built one in my lifetime. I forget, but it's been a long time. And now China is going to get a brand-new one paid for uh, by the Saudis. But in two or three years, however long it's going to take to build. I mean, if we built one, it would probably take 10 years just to get the permits let alone the building. But um, when this refinery is finished and all these barrels are coming in on a daily basis uh, from the kingdom into China, there is no way, in my opinion, that China is going to be paying for Saudi oil with U.S. dollars. No, they're going to be paying with their own currency or maybe they'll be paying in gold or something like that, but they're not going to be paying in U.S. dollars, right? So between now and then, 
the dollar is going to be knocked off its throne as the king currency. Uh, that's there. That's going to happen. All this is going to start unraveling as inflation runs out of control because the Fed is exactly at the point that I have said it would be in for over a dozen years. I knew we would get here. I knew there was no chance we would arrive at any other destination other than where we are. The only thing I didn't know is the exact course that we were going to take. And we took a real jaggedy course, you know, and, and so it took a lot longer to get here. We're exactly where I thought we would be. We're just here years later. But here's the problem again, because we took that elongated path, along the way, the problems got much worse. So heeding my advice is even more important now. What is about to happen is going to be much worse than what would have happened had it happened 10 years ago. And therefore, it's that much more important that my listeners be prepared. And I think the rewards for being prepared will be that much greater. So I think the money we're going to make on our gold, our gold stocks, we're going to make a lot more because we had to wait so much longer to get paid. And the same thing for our non-dollar portfolio, our foreign value stocks, our foreign dividend paying stocks, our emerging market exposure, where I think we're going to end up making a lot more money on this portfolio uh, because we waited so long. And during that delay, the problems got so bad. The flip side of that is that the people who don't follow my advice are going to lose that much more. And again, the losses that I'm most concerned about are not nominal losses. Right? It's not losing money that I'm concerned about because the Fed could print enough money, right? The, the Fed could make everybody whole. The Fed could print trillions of dollars and, and pass it out, right? I mean, so they can make sure that nobody loses dollars. But the one thing they can't print is purchasing power. They can't give value to that money. That's all uh, a confidence game. <clears throat> and the confidence is going to run out for the U.S. dollar based on how much inflation is going to be unleashed and the, the, the self-perpetuating spiral that happens because more inflation causes the Fed to have to adopt even more inflationary policies to counteract the damage done by the inflation. And so now there's even more inflation, which does even more damage, which results in the Fed creating even more of it. And then it runs away, runs out of control, hyperinflation. So before that happens, get prepared, uh, contact uh, the representatives at, uh, at Shift Gold and at your Pacific Asset Management. And, uh, you know, you know, don't wait. I mean, uh, you know, I, I look at, again, I'm looking at these markets, and to me, we're just in the eye of a storm, right? We are just getting ready for some explosive moves. Uh, and, and so before the explosion, uh, make sure you're, you've taken shelter in your position. So bye for now, and I'll be back again with another uh, live episode uh, of The Peter Schiff Show.